December 1903, after many attempts, the famous Wright brothers were successful in getting their first flying machine off the ground. Uh, They were thrilled, and so they telegraphed their sister, Catherine, telegraph, not an instrument that we use now. Their telegraph said this, we have actually flown 120 feet, we'll be home for Christmas. Catherine thought this was exciting news, so she hurries down to the editor of the local newspaper to share this monumental news and shares this telegraph from her brothers. We have flown 120 feet, we'll be home for Christmas. The editor glances at the telegraph and replies, how nice, the boys will be home for Christmas. They missed the point of the whole telegraph. It's nice that the boys are going to be home for Christmas, but that was not the most important news, the important part of that news, right? Uh, we tend to make a similar mistake around Christmas time. During this season, it is easy for our focus to shift. It is easy for our focus to shift to family time, um, to Christmas parties and gathering at Granny's house, uh, to food. Easy to shift your focus to food during the Christmas season. Uh, We tend to shift our focus to decorating and shopping and gift buying and Santa Claus and elf on a shelf creativity, trying to come up with where you're going to put the little elf dude. We we didn't fall into the trap of the elf on the shelf, thankfully. Um, When am I going to watch A Christmas Story again? When am I going to watch Christmas Vacation for the 50th time? It's easy to lose focus during this time of the year. It's easy to lose sight of the most important part of the Christmas event. And in this series, we are considering the Christmas story from the perspective of three New Testament authors who wrote letters to local gatherings, local churches in the first century. And part of these letters is defining who Jesus is. These specific portions of these letters are essential to what the church has believed historically and theologically about who Jesus is. And the question that we are zeroed in on from these particular texts for this series is the question, who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And what does it mean that God came to earth? You see, if we fail to look beyond the kind of haloed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby Jesus in the manger scene on our mantle, if we fail to look beyond that Christmas story, if we fail to look beyond that child in a manger, we're missing the bigger news of Christmas, of the Christmas event. The Christmas event is about the eternal creator God entering into our temporary space. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming one of us, taking on human flesh while maintaining his status as God. I said last week that we call that the incarnation, which means to take on human flesh. That God becomes one of us. And we said that the portions of Scripture that we're looking at, the teachings from these portions of Scripture, they are center circle issues of the Christian faith. They are closed-handed issues. They're not up for negotiation of what it means to be a 
follower of Jesus. Who Jesus is defines what we believe it means to be a follower of Christ, a Christian. And last week we looked at Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to just read that text again just to remind us what uh, Paul said in Colossians 1. We won't spend any time on it. Um, Colossians 1.15, he, being this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, th- in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul reminds us in his letter to this gathering of Jesus followers in the city of Colossae that because of who Jesus is, he is preeminent in everything. He is preeminent in every way. Today, in Hebrews chapter 1, we focus on another crucial portion of the second first century letter written to a local gathering of Jesus followers who we believe the context here again are being tempted to walk away from their beliefs. And what we find all throughout the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, that Christ is superior, that he is God's supreme revelation. Look how the author of Hebrews begins his letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the book of Hebrews is one of the most unusual books of the New Testament. It's anonymous. We do not know for sure who wrote it. Uh, We're unsure of the audience. Uh, Most believe that it was um, a group of converted Jews who are being tempted to return to Judaism because of persecution. Um, It's written almost like a sermon. Um, It's filled with exhortation. It's filled with warning. It's filled with encouragement. But the overall theme of the book focuses on this idea that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is worth following because he is superior in every way. He is superior than the, he's greater than the prophets, he's greater than the angels, than Moses, he's greater than the old covenant, he's greater than the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, and on and on and on the writer of Hebrews goes. That Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. The premise of the book of Hebrews is focus on who Jesus is. When you're being tempted to turn away, when you're being tempted to walk away, focus on who Christ is. That he is the author and finisher. He is greater than. And the the author really just begins with two very simple but crucial thoughts. And we'll talk through those this morning. The first thing the author tells us is, again, very clear in verse 1. God spoke in times past, but his speaking, his revelation was not complete. It was incomplete. Look again, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Two of these opening words are some of the most important words in all of human history. 
God spoke. God spoke. God spoke. I mean, how crucial are those two words? How crucial are, are those two? Those are grace words. Those are grace words. God spoke. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says about this first verse, the initial affirmation is basic to the Christian faith. Had God remained silent, enshrouded in thick darkness, the plight of humankind would have been desperate. But now God has spoken. His revealing, redeeming, and life-giving word. And in His speaking, we see light. God spoke. I mean, these two words are monumental. Why, why are they so important? They're so important because if God does not speak, then we remain without hope. We're hopeless. Let me explain this train of thought here. As humans, we live in a natural box. We are time, space creatures confined to our natural world. We can't get beyond our natural world. Our senses, right, to see and taste and touch and hear, our senses, as awesome as they are, they are incapable of reaching beyond the natural. They confine us to this natural box that we live in, that we call earth. Now, outside of this natural box is a supernatural world. A supernatural world where God exists. And I believe deep within us, we kind of sense that something greater is out there. But we're incapable of knowing with certainty who or what that something or that someone is. Because we're time-space creatures. We're confined to our natural box. We can guess and we can speculate and we can wonder and we can hypothesize and we can write theories and all these things. But because of our limitations, because we are limited by the natural, we cannot know for certain of anything outside of our box in and of ourselves. We desperately desire to know. We try to know. I mean, that's what religion at its core is all about. It's the attempt to discover and tap into this supernatural world through natural means. There's multitudes of religions that have evolved in human history attempting to uncover how we can know or even some how we can become the supernatural, what or who that lies beyond us. And so all the major world religions from Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, um, every major world religion, even misguided Christianity at some level, attempts to get outside the box, to get beyond the natural to the supernatural. But here's the problem. The problem is we cannot get outside of ourselves. We are confined. No matter how hard we try or what systems we put in place or religious processes we develop, what efforts we attempt, we cannot get out because we're bound to the laws of nature. And if this is true, if this is true, for us to know anything about the who or about the what that is beyond us, for us to know anything about the supernatural, for us to know anything about God, then God must reveal Himself to us. If it's left up to us, we are without hope. We cannot get outside this box. So if we're going to know anything about the who or the what that is out there that we call God, it will not be by climbing out of the box. It will not be by working our way to God. That's what religion is, the effort to work ourselves to God. It will only be through God coming to us, God speaking to us, God revealing Himself to us. That's why these two words are vital. 
God spoke. God revealed. God spoke. They tell us that God has revealed himself. That he has come to us. That he has entered our space. That the supernatural has invaded the natural. That's why these are grace words. Because without them, without God revealing, without God speaking, we would simply be confined to the here and now, the natural box in which we live, and no way to get outside of that. So these are some weighty words God has spoken. And we learn in this first verse that God's initial revelation was limited, wasn't it? Notice how the writer says it. God spoke in many times, in many ways, uh, by, to, the, to our fathers by the prophets. That God's revelation uh, prior to Jesus was frequent, but it was incomplete. It was restricted, the author says, to various times and through various people. Like We read all these accounts throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of different times and ways that God spoke. God would speak directly at times to the prophets. He um, called Samuel by name one night. Samuel, Samuel. And um, Samuel's like confused, thinking someone else was talking. It was God revealing himself. God spoke at times through nature. Um, the, the story of Elijah. God speaks through uh, kind of the whirlwind to, to get Elijah's attention. God speaks to Moses through a, a bush that cannot be consumed, a burning bush. God spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. I mean, you read those Big chunk Old Testament books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, God is speaking through visions. He speaks to Daniel through visions. God speaks through judgment. He speaks through plagues. We saw that in the Exodus series that he spoke to the Egyptians and to the Israelites through his plagues. He speaks to these world powers of that day through the judgment that he would send. Um, God speaks through his chastisement. Remember like the story of Jonah and the big fish that God captured Jonah's attention through, um, through, this, through this big fish, this whale that swallowed him. Uh, God even speaks through creatures at times in the Old Testament. And one of the most unusual stories of the Old Testament is this guy named Balaam. And God speaks through Balaam's donkey. Like the donkey turns and speaks to Balaam. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, God still speaks through donkeys today. God spoke in different ways in the various times and through numerous persons, but his revelation was incomplete. It was not final, which is where the author picks up with this second profound thought in this section, that God speaks, God spoke fully and completely in Christ Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God speaks fully and completely in Christ. Verse 2, there's this important transition. Verse 1 is like God spoke at various times in different ways. Verse 2 is God has spoken in these last times by His Son. This phrase in these last days indicates this transition that God has now revealed Himself more fully, more completely. That His revelation prior to Jesus was incomplete. It was fragmentary. It wasn't finished. But Jesus is God's greater revelation. God's greater revealing. 
that Christ is the complete and final revelation of God. And this truth, as I've said, is essential to our faith. It's essential to the Christmas story. Like you can't take this part out of the Christian faith and be left with anything. That God has spoken through His Son. That He has revealed Himself through Jesus. That Christ is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. He is the pinnacle, the climax of the redemptive history story. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the different times. He's greater than the various ways. He is God's supreme revelation. And then He gives us like this resume. Like how is He greater? How is He better? How is He more supreme? And He gives us these just just seven kind of shotgun approach to who Jesus is. He says He's the heir of all things. His first qualifying characteristic is His inheritance. Jesus is the Son of God, then He is the rightful heir of all things that God possesses. He is the owner of everything. Everything that exists finds its true meaning and ultimate meaning in Christ. We saw this last week in Colossians 1 where Paul says Christ is the firstborn of all creation, that He is preeminent, deserving all honor and glory, the rightful heir of all things. He says, like Paul said in Colossians, he's the creator of all things. That through him the world was creator. That he has created, created. He is creator God. The word translated world here um, goes beyond just kind of the, well, we picture sometimes our physical cosmos that we live in. Uh, the word world here actually carries with it the idea of ages, the ages of time. Meaning that he is Lord of all history, not just the physical domain in which we live. He's not only responsible for the creation of our physical world, he is responsible for the outworking of all of human history. That history is his story, the story of redemption. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory is the third defining mark here. This word radiance means to send up, send forth light. We get that idea. We're talking about radiance as something is shining, it's bright. And it speaks to Jesus as this ultimate reflection of God's glory, of who God is, that he reveals God's glory. He turns on the light for us. In the Old Testament, we are informed that no human can behold the glory of God and live. Yet in and through Christ, God's glory is revealed. John, the disciple, said it this way. In Christ, God sends his light into a world controlled by darkness. And in the darkness, he shines. He radiates in the darkness and the darkness cannot contain, cannot limit or restrict the light of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. Fourth characteristic, he says he's the exact imprint, the exact representation of God, of his nature. This again phrase exact representation is a term that was used in that day for um, when, a, when a king would take his signet ring or stamp and he would put it in hot wax and it would leave behind the exact imprint that was authoritative. It's the idea of even like in our modern times like a tattoo. It's like something that's permanently imprinted. The design is reproduced and the word here is that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. That he is the personal, complete, perfect imprint of God on time and space. We saw it last week in Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God. That the invisible becomes visible. He reveals God to us. He 
reflects exactly who God is. That everything that God is, Christ is. That every attribute, attribute of God, Jesus reflects. That He is love and mercy and grace and holiness. That Christ represents God. I've been doing some initial prep for our um, Gospel of Mark study starting in January. And I'm, I'm fascinated right now with the story of Jesus in Mark. And I've been reminding myself again, excited to go through this series again, to, to just be captured once again by who Jesus is. Like, how does he interact with people? What compassion does he show? Like, where, what, what words does he use? What miracles does he perform? And why does he perform in those contexts? Like, just being engrossed with the story of who Jesus is. And I've been reminding myself in prepping for this series that, that Jesus on earth represents who God is. That when we see Jesus living out his life, his ministry on earth, he's representing who God is. And how he responds is how God would respond. The compassion he shows is the compassion that God shows. That the love he shows is the love that God has. But Jesus has what seems to be harsh things to say to uh, religious leaders or whoever. That that's representing the character of who God is. He is the exact representation of God. By the way, I posted this week on the uh, Facebook community um, page. Uh, there's a, a place, um, and you can follow the link if you go back and look, or you can just Google it, uh, where you can actually buy uh, the Gospel of Mark, just a single volume, I think it's a paperback book that has all the text, and then every page has text, and then it has a blank page. Um, it's a great resource for our Gospel of Mark series where you can keep notes and follow along in the sermon, all those things. I think it was $4 um, where I saw it when I Googled it. So, um, so get, get a resource like that as we go through the Gospel of Mark together. Um, so he represents the exact representation of God's nature. And then the fifth thing he says is that he upholds all things by the word of his power. We saw last week he is the sustainer. He is the maintainer. Christ upholds. This is a continual tense verb. He's continually upholding the world by the word of his power. I love that it's a word. It only takes a word for God to maintain, to uphold, to sustain the complexity of the world that we live in, right? I have a hard time just maintaining my household. And it doesn't happen with a word, I can tell you that. Maybe a word being directed to me to do something, then it happens with a spoken word. God upholds the universe by the spoken word of His power. He is in absolute control. And then perhaps the most important descriptive phrase of all that he uses here, that he is the purger of our sins. He purged our sins. That Jesus alone is greater. That Jesus alone is qualified because he alone is the Savior. He alone is the Redeemer. It was a wondrous work when God created the world. It was a great day when he entered our space. It is great that he sustains the world, but even greater in all of this is the redemptive work, the redemptive truth that Christ purges our sin. That the Holy God not only became one of us, but he also provides for our sins. And the sacrifice of Christ, God deals with the sin problem once and for all. To purge is to purify, to make clean once and for all. And this is exactly what Christ did on Calvary. That he paid the necessary price to purge, to cleanse, to purify us 
He did all that was needed. If you were to go through the book of Hebrews, you would read in later chapters, in like chapters 8 and 9 and 10, um, how the Hebrew writer talks about the sacrificial system and the lamb and the priest and all these things that happened for the purification of sin and the old covenant. And in, in, in light of all that, the shadow of all that, is this idea that Christ is the greater sacrifice. That all of that became obsolete is the word the, the, the writer will use. In light of the fact that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. That His sacrifice, His once and for all sacrifice is all that is needed for the purification of our sins. That He is the final and complete sacrifice. He purged our sin. And then this last phrase, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This has to do with his exalted status, that when he had completed his sacrificial work and been raised from the dead, he took his place of honor at the Father's right side. This phrase, sat down, means that the, the act is finished, it's completed, there's nothing else to do. Jesus is not up in heaven pacing back and forth, wondering like, how am I going to forgive their sins? I wasn't expecting this. No, he's like, sat down, it's a completed, finished work, it's done, there's nothing more to do. That when Jesus said, it is finished, that that encaptured a lot of different stuff. One of the things that it included was there's nothing else has to happen for sins to be forgiven. He sat down. The right hand has to do with this idea of power and honor and authority. If you remember, we went through our Romans 8 series. We learned that there at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus Christ serves as our intercessor. That he is seated in his place of honor and exaltation and he is interceding on our behalf. That he represents us. That he is the supreme ruler of the universe and he is representing his followers to the Father, interceding on our behalf. So in this text, and then he'll flesh this out throughout the book of Hebrews. The author basically is portraying Christ as the greater in all these roles of the Old Testament. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater priest. He is the greater king. As the greater prophet, he is God's ultimate and final spokesperson. That he represents God fully. And he speaks not just for God. He speaks as God. That he is the greater prophet. He's the greater priest. He atones for sin. I've told you before, and I think I talked about a little bit in our Hebrew small group, that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you read the, the fine print in the tabernacle and then in the temple, when a priest would enter into that most holy place where he's bringing the sacrifice to apply to the altar, man, they had to tie a rope around that dude's ankle in case he went in you know, not completely holy, so that they could drag his carcass out if something happened. Like, they couldn't go in and get him. It was too holy. So they tie a rope around that. They're like, how many times do they have to use the rope? That's what I want to know. But all that was in place because the person entering into the presence of God was not qualified, unqualified, sinful. Jesus is the greater priest. He's not tying a rope around his ankle. He is the sinless one, the completely pure and holy one that enters the presence of God. He did what the human priest could not do. He makes the necessary provision for his people. And then this priestly role of interceding on our behalf. He is the greater priest. He is the greater king. 
He's the creator and sustainer of the world. He sits enthroned in glory and honor, having completed what he was called to do. So as you walk through a passage like Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, you realize how the Christ of Christmas is the greater prophet, greater priest, greater king, God's supreme revelation. And so this Christmas season, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We have to look beyond, look beyond the small infant that we put on our mantles and sing songs about and hopefully tell our kids about. That he is bigger and greater. We need to be reminded that God entered our box because we are incapable of getting out of it, escaping it. The supernatural took on human flesh and entered the natural world. Here's the good news of the gospel. Our religious efforts, our religious efforts, they reflect our failed attempts to try to get out of the box. But the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, is what Luke said in 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, in Christ, God enters our world and reveals who God is. He reveals what God is like, that God invades our world to show us himself. He comes down to us. So here's how I want to encourage you. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Stop trying to earn your way out of the box. Stop trying to build whatever religious platform you're trying to build to make yourself presentable before God. Stop trying to somehow measure up and if I do this and I don't do this and stop doing this and start doing this and somehow God will be pleased with me. Like that, that's the story of the Christmas in which we live. If you're good, this jolly dude brings you gifts, you're not so good, jolly may not show up, or he may show up with coal, right? Man, that's like the whole Santa Claus deal is like human performance 101. That's what's natural to us. If I do all these things, then God is happy with me. If I don't do these things, God is pleased. And the gospel is the exact opposite of that in every way. That there is nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it or work for it. Stop trying. What Jesus has done is enough. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. His work is complete. Rest in Him. He is bigger. He is greater. He is better. God spoke. He did everything necessary. He spoke once and for all to us in Christ. Who He is What he has done is enough. Live in the gospel. Live in the gospel. We seek to please him from acceptance, not for acceptance. God spoke. Our challenge, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear who He is. Hear who He is. He is greater. 
He is better because He is God's ultimate, final, and complete revelation. God spoke.